Hi, I'm Carlos Frias, the host of Sundial. It's our spring pledge drive and we're bringing you some of our favorite conversations. Our guests help tell the story of South Florida life and culture. So first, we catch up with Dave Barry. He's a comedic writer who's written for the Oscars, authored more than 25 books, and became the first humor writer to win a Pulitzer Prize for commentary. And now, Dave's written a new book, Swamp Story, due out in May, just in time for the swampiest part of the season. Speaking of swamps, we chat with WLRN environmental reporter Jenny Stiletovich. She finds the smartest ways to tell us about what's going on with Florida's ecosystem and when people run afoul of it. Scientists tracking pythons, bird watchers at the county dump, and developers pushing into sensitive wetlands. All of that coming up in five minutes after the news. I'm Carlos Frias. Welcome to Sundial on WLRN during our spring pledge drive. Well, Dave Barry is at it again. The comedic writer is written for the Oscars, authored more than 25 books, and became the first humor writer to win a Pulitzer Prize for commentary. And now, Dave's written a new book. Swamp Story is due out in May, just in time for the swampiest part of South Florida season. His comedic misdirection earned him a loyal readership at the Miami Herald. And he turned that style into a varied writing career. He's written nonfiction about what his dog taught him, fiction for young adults, and novels about ridiculous Florida things for immature adults. He regularly dusts off his old Miami Herald byline to write the occasional column about an iguana crawling out of a toilet. And he also puts together an annual guide of truly useless gifts that are nonetheless ripe for comedy. I regret not buying the onesie that would turn my baby into a floor mop. And... I am not making this up. Dave Barry joined us earlier this year. He caught us up on life in Dave's world. I'm not making this up. That's like become the Dave Barry catchphrase. Yeah, you know, you mean, I don't know, because my column was almost all lies, you know, and <laughs> and when you put things in a newspaper, the, the kind of key to my whole thing was I wrote in the, you know, the tone of an authority like all newspaper people do, mm -hmm. but I was, you know, ludicrously ill-informed and wrong all the time. So when every, on those rare occasions when I would write something that was actually true in my column, or, you know, a lot of times column would be based on something that actually happened, but people wouldn't believe me because I lied all the time. So I would have to say, I am not making this up. I'm, but I didn't invent the phrase, I'm not making this up. I really didn't. I'm sure that many people have said that before I did, but it did get associated with me. And now anybody who says it has to send me $5. Oh, is or that right? Or even thinks it, even just thinking it. The people right now in the audience, oh, no. I don't, I, I never made any money off the phrase, but damn it, it, it sure got associated with my name somehow. Well, I'm, I'm 10 bucks in the hole, so I'm, there you go. I'm I, so I, I got you at the end of the show. I, I always think of that, uh, the John McEnroe, uh, quote was uh, you can't you be, be serious. serious. Yeah, and it was like something he said once early in his career, yeah. and, it be, and it came to define his whole career. But he did say it on television in front of like a whole lot of people in the U.S. Open or something, and he said it in such an emphatic way that it sort of stuck in your mind. That was you know. Yeah, but but I'm now making this up. I thought it was great because it's you. It's also it applies so much to Florida, right? Like you almost have to tell people this is so ridiculous, but really it happened or what have you. Yeah, the world is sort of now caught up to the fact that Florida is really a weird 
place, even by the world's standards. Uh, long ago, when it was basically Carl Hyacin and a few other people, you know, and Miami Herald writers were all aware of this. This is just strange things keep happening here. Mm-hmm. Um, but and and as Carl used to say, you, you know, when people would ask him where did he get these crazy ideas for his books, he'd always say, "You don't need an imagination; you just need a subscription to the Miami Herald." Because I think now people have sort of figured it out, and you know, with the whole Florida man thing, Florida has become accepted as kind of the standard for mm-hmm. American strangeness. We surpassed California. We surpassed Texas. We're we're number one in, in, in weirdness. Yeah, I mean, we have. I think it's something like this, I could be wrong on this, the numbers, but it's something like we have fourteen percent of the nation's population, but we produce eighty three percent of the nation's weirdness <laughs> in this state. Now, a lot of it, a lot of it is people who just are not from here. That's right. I'm always pointing this out. If you actually read the stories about Florida, you know things. A lot of the times, you know, the guy who chooses to pleasure himself into an Elmo doll at a Walmart <laughs> turns out to be from Cincinnati. You know, you uh-huh. don't do that in Cincinnati. For When you want to do that, you come to Florida. Boy, we, I can't wait to get to Florida. Yeah, exactly. We get are like, my hands on that Elmo doll. We're like Ellis, Ellis Island for weird, <laughs> stupid people. Can we, uh, but so are you, are you a local now? Because I understand you were from a sleepy little town and I've, I've been to Haverford College where oh, you yeah. went to okay. to Haverford and that's a, like that's like a very much like a little murder town where you would set a, a murder happening uh, Haverford, was my impression I, nobody's <laughs> ever murdered anybody ever in Haverford Haverford my my uh, my proposal long ago and they've never taken me up on this that they they should their motto should be Haverford College we never heard of you either because <laughs> you know, it's like a little tiny it's a good college I always say there's like seven of us who graduated from it um, but yeah, that's I was there until I moved here in 1986. So that makes me what 36 years in in Miami. Yeah, that makes me as much a native as most people down here. I think so. Although I, I read that you went to some place called Wampus Elementary, which Wampus. I'm, I'm pretty sure you made that up because mm-hmm. I don't think that's a real place. Armonk, New York, baby. That's where I born and raised, and I went to Wampus Elementary, which is still there. Were you always like that? Were you always the the funny kid in your household in your in your class? Yes. Uh, well, in my household, no, because my household was a funny household. I, oh, really? Yeah. Th- there were four of us kids and and two parents, and uh, my parents were very funny people, especially my mother. In fact, this is where I'm writing a memoir. I, I I was really reluctant to ever do that, but I'm been basically talked into doing it. And I'm doing it. And right now I'm in the very early parts talking about, you know, growing up. And um, my mom was a 50s housewife. And, you know, that's what they were called in those days. Right. She has four kids. She's got to get us to school, get us to the Boy Scouts, the Little League and all that stuff. You know, and she's dealing with all that stuff. But she was really edgy and dark. And at the time, we didn't know that. We just sort of took it for granted that uh-huh. our mom was like that. You know? In what way? Like, what? Give me an example of, uh, okay, of like, mom being a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So, like, uh, where we there's a pond behind our house in the woods. We, we didn't own the woods back then. We there were just woods behind our house. And how novel. <laughs> we, we 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 kind of lived out there. You know, that clearly there, wasn't in my, in South Florida because somebody would have owned that. No, already. no, yeah. yeah. Well, and it's not that way anymore. In Armagh, New York, is now hedge fund land. Oh. You know, and so everything is owned by somebody. And they're Armand where where Inc. I used to play are now these gigantic mansions. But but back then it was the Hadleys. The people were named Hadleys, and they didn't care. At least we didn't think they cared <laughs> if we they had, you know if we played in their property. And they had this pond. We call it Hadley's Pond. 
because it was in the Hadley's Woods. And we used to go swim there. You know, this is back, I mean, like, I'm talking, I'm six, my, my sister's eight, seven or eight. So we're like two young. Nowadays, if you did that, you'd be arrested for, you know, your parents would be arrested. For, <laughs> back you let then, your six-year-old swim in the pond alone. We're, we're going to the pond, you know. And my mom would, you know, she's in there doing the dishes or whatever. And, you know, we're walking out behind her kitchen is the woods. And we were out, headed off to the pond. We went off that, and my mom would open the, and just like June Cleaver yell, don't drown, kids. <laughs> And we go, we won't. And we all thought that was hilarious, you know. And I now know that that's not what most moms, you know, were like. But that's right. where she was. She was just, she never took anything that seriously. Um, and so, that so in my house, anyway, to get back to your question, which I'm sure all of the listeners have completely forgotten, but not me because I'm a professional. My house was pretty funny, you know, the way we, and my dad has a good sense of humor too, but he wasn't like, my mom was just really out there. He could keep up with her, but she was He the, could, he appreciated her. Yeah. That's why he married her, I think. And he was a very funny guy too, he really was. So anyway, all of us in our house, we lived in humor. We, like, nobody was ever not sarcastic. Ever, you know, we just saw the humor and stuff, and that was how you in our house communicated, right. by humor, and, and by, by not taking things too seriously, especially not yourself. So when I got to school, and I, I was not a, I was not a good athlete. I was not a big kid. I was not a good-looking kid. I was, you know, believe it or not. I mean, look at me now. I'm like, like, but <laughs> you're an Adonis. I, I don't was, know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, I was, you know, I, I the way I, uh, you know, made friends and the way I, uh, you know, got attention was to be funny, and I was right. good at that. And so, it, and it, this is far from saying like I, you know, even knew then that I was going to go into the because that never occurred to me that there was any, you know, meaningful future connected with this but i was the class clown i was literally elected class clown in pleasantville high school class of 1960 well male back then is a male and dark identified as male identified as female class clown and um so we had two class clowns me and tony flood she was the female class clown. i don't know where she is now but i hope you have her on the show that she can give her side of this but anyway um if you're out there if if tony Tony has people Please call us at WLR. Tony Antoinette Flood. We know you're out there. We know you're listening. Anyway, so so yeah. Then I, you know, in school that was that was what I did, and I became that was you know my kind of my identity. You which, were you were kind of the accidental comedian. Not you know no. It was quite intentional. Okay. <laughs> I didn't have any other skills. So, and, but you know that, that's like the you talk to anybody who's who's it goes into the humor field, mm-hmm. and inevitably you will discover there are basic reasons we all do it. One is we're insecure about ourselves. Mm-hmm. We want people to like us, but we don't want people to know us. You know, humor is a very good way to you know deflect people, keep people from finding anything out about you. You just make a joke out of everything, and that was me. That was me all through the, my school years and. And weirdly enough, it continued to be me the rest of my life. <laughs> it turns out I never got past that. That was humor writer Dave Barry. He joined us on Sundial earlier this year to talk about his new book, Swamp Story, coming out in May. We'll continue our conversation with Dave in a minute. He'll tell us all about a new memoir he's writing. And if you like interviews like this, remember, your contributions to public radio help us make your favorite shows, like Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN during our spring pledge drive. Let's get back to our conversation with syndicated humor writer Dave Barry. His commentary won him a Pulitzer Prize, he's written for the Oscars, and he's authored more than 25 books. We pick up with talking about his father's unique sense of humor, all while doing a job most wouldn't consider very funny. He was a Presbyterian minister, and uh, and he was... Uh, 
he didn't he didn't have a church he didn't he didn't pastor a church although he I, he gave many sermons that I saw him give growing up and he married many many people um, but he he ran an organization called the New York City Mission Society which was a an inner city New York City uh, social work agency that ran programs for mostly for kids and summer camps for kids from the, from the inner city. Oh. So, and, and he was also really active in the civil rights movement. This is in the fifties and sixties. Um, so that was him. So, you know, you tend to think of like the, you know, clergyman, you know, guy with a reverse collar and right. that was not my dad. He wore a tie like everybody else. He smoked and he drank. Uh, he, uh, he rode this, the train to New York city with the other dads and rode home, you know, and he was a fun guy, you know, it's just, that was his job. He was always kind of passionate about, um, social issues. What a role model. He was a good role model. He was just very funny. Um, but very good. He was always, he's a better human being than I will ever be. Oh, <laughs> so that's I, really sweet. Yeah. I always looked up to him. Um, and, and, uh. Yeah, that was my dad. It's funny because I think the two serious things I've ever read from you, like that I've come across, are the stories of, of your father and your mother's passing. Yeah, you know those. Like I said earlier, that I, that I've written a lot of serious things. My my dad, when he died, I wrote. I had to write on why I had to write. I wrote a, it was called a million words. It was a short essay for Tropic Magazine. It was just. Because I, I knew I, I was fortunate enough to know when I was gonna, the last time I was going to see him. I knew he was dying, yeah. and um, and um, well, I was at our house, and my mom and I had to go, I had to leave, um, heading, heading back to Florida, and no, heading back to to Pennsylvania, back then. And um, but I kind of knew, you know, he was sinking fast. He yeah. was living at home, but he wasn't doing well. Yeah. And so my mom and I were hugging and talking, and she said, "Well, go say goodbye to your dad," you know. And we both knew it. We we made it sound like, well, I'll see him again. But we both kind of, I think, knew maybe I wouldn't. Yeah. And as it happened, I didn't. So I went in to say goodbye, and I'm, you know, and I'm thinking like, this is, you know, my dad. This is this is uh, a time for a really important. And he was in kind of bad shape, physically in kind of miserable. And he, and he asked, could could he get some? Um, I can't remember what it was oatmeal, something like that. Oatmeal, as I remember reading. You know, can you get some oatmeal? And I came back to mom and said, you know, dad wants some oatmeal. <laughs> and, you know, we laughed because, as I said, my mom was. She got it. She always got it. Yeah. She got the joke. And we both, that was pretty, that was, you know, that was a so, little. So there's a lot of comedians that grew up and folks who write in humor and, and are comedians who grew up in families who do not have a sense of humor. Well, I feel bad for those people. Yeah. <laughs> but, but anyway, so like, then I wrote about that. I wrote yeah. like, you know, you want it to be meaningful, but then I realized, you know, driving home crying, yeah, barely look, able to see the road. I'm right. I'm thinking like, you know, I, and this is what became the the title of the piece, A Million Words. I, I've, I've, my dad has already given me a million words, you know, so I'm starting to break up here. So anyway, so that I'm was sorry. It's that, my, my dad died a couple of years ago. It'll be three years now. I'm in, sorry. Uh, in February, and uh, it's always fresh. Yeah. So I understand. So then, uh, when my mom my mom committed suicide, I'll just say that my mom battled depression her entire life, and uh, after my dad died, she had three very rough years. And in those those years, my brothers and I tried everything to make her life better. Tried, you know, move here, move there. You know, where you know where's she going to live? What's she going to do? And I was, I'm the oldest brother, so I was like, you know, trying to give her advice. I'm in, at this point, I'm in my, uh, I'm just turning 40 and I'm giving my mother, you know, and, and, uh, 
the the column and then she committed suicide and and uh, i wrote a column about that and it was called lost in america because she had been just wandering around but the point there was the thing i learned from that one was uh you don't you think you know you know but you do not know what your parents are going through no. even though you're more competent because you're 40 and she's like losing it and she's you know in her 70s she's the one who lost everything she's the one who doesn't know does know she's not going to find it you know not going to ever find what she's looking for yeah and i mean not to say that everybody's parents commit suicide but 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 I, we but but it's but in often cases we do we do lose our parents and we're able and we live through it and and it and we're changed for it so yeah and i mean yeah. and for me the lesson was just don't think you know <laughs> you yeah. don't know what uh, what you know what you they're going through um so I just want to say that, you know, if you or someone you know needs help, please know that you have options. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline number is 988. So you just punch 988 and you have someone there uh, who can talk to you and, and talk to you about how you're feeling. Yeah. Uh, there are certain things that you write to get out of your head, things like that, like to to release your soul to be able to write again. And you've and you've managed to do that in your career. Your career has always been like, I think back on um, a, a book that I read and then the movie that was made of of uh, uh it's a big trouble yeah and and that that book like you must have been so ready for it to come out come out and then it was like september 11th yeah and then everything <laughs> got shelved for six months yeah the movie yeah and it's and it's like that's but that's humor is also seeing the the absurdity in things uh in, in life um and i wonder if all these things inform you as a as a writer as a complete person as you come through these things and you know write things that are serious and write things that are funny and always looking in the absurdity and like how that how have you changed do you think is like when you oh. started out writing to now when you sit down to write like how do yeah. you find your your writing and your thought process has changed well i mean i don't i don't feel like i've changed that much but then i know that that's ridiculous that's stupid sure. i am 75 years old how did that happen how did that happen and i've been writing for like more than 40 going on like 50 years so Obviously, a lot has changed. Obviously, what I've written about has changed. But in my mind, it's still like the same process. Um, you know, setting aside the few times I've tried to be serious, it's like, here's the topic. What's funny about it? What's a joke I can make about that? And okay, there's one. Now, what's the next one? And I can make, you know, it's like, it's like not anything remotely uh, philosophical or intellectual or anything it was really just what's a joke what's another joke what's another joke and so to me that feels like the same and i feel like i'm writing the same thing. but i i know that when i go back and read something that i wrote a long time ago sometimes i don't even remember anything about it when writing it and sometimes i think well I, that's pretty good i don't know if i could write that now and sometimes i think that wasn't that good i could do better than that um, but when it's good and it makes you laugh again, that's, that, that's I like feeling. that. I like that. It makes me feel happy. But then it makes me sad that because I can't write it again. That because it's already <laughs> <laughs> it's already been written. And I can't do. But it, it, I know that I'm a, I'm a different person. I'm I know I'm older and crankier, and I know I um, you know I I pr shifted around on what I uh, and what I believe in somewhat. But I, I think basically I feel like the same kid who was trying to be the class clown in you know Pleasantville High School in 1965 which is to say I'm skating through life making a living trying to amuse people without having anything useful to say 
uh, without really doing any hard intellectual work, you know. And it's still working all these years later. So in that sense, it feels like I'm the, I'm the same. Well, if I listened back to the last 10 minutes of this, I'd say that I, I can't wait to read your memoir because <laughs> I, think that there's, I think that we will laugh and cry in it. That was humor writer Dave Barry. He joined us on Sundial earlier this year to talk about his new book, Swamp Story, coming out in May. You can listen to the full conversation on our website at wlrn.org forward slash sundial. Still to come, WLRN's environmental reporter Jenny Stiletovich joins us to share some of her wild stories from her time in the field about the creepy critters and the urban creepers. But first, we need your support to keep bringing you conversations like this one. I'm Carlos Frias. Welcome back to Sundial during our spring pledge drive. Is it wrong that when I think about invasive species, like pythons, iguanas, giant snails, I think of Jenny Stiletovich? It's not Jenny's fault, not exactly. She covers South Florida's environment for WLRN, and she just happens to be one of the best reporters around on that beat. So anytime I read about Florida men crashing up against the environment, it's usually something Jenny's written. Iguanas freezing and falling out of trees? Jenny. Scientists using radio trackers to find invasive pythons in the Everglades? Also Jenny. Bird watchers finding rare birds at the county dump? That was Jenny too. She's also a Florida native, so Jenny also pays special attention to big corporations, pushing the boundaries of the state's delicate ecosystem. She joined us on Sundial, and we asked her about all the creepy critters and the urban creepers. I grew up in Fort Lauderdale. Okay. So that's pretty citified. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I was actually born in Ocala if in the you country. Say so. um, yeah. <laughs> but so, yeah, so I started out like in the country. And then when, when I started school, like in, in kindergarten, we moved down to, to Fort Lauderdale. But uh-huh. I was, I grew up, you know, riding my bicycle to the beach. I don't think we went down to the Keys, but I never went out to the to the Everglades. Interesting. You know, I just didn't know what it really like. A lot of people who live on the coast, we forget that there's this huge interior, beautiful space that is com- that is a hundred percent different from what you see when you look east. Right. Um, tell me about what your brush was like again with nature growing up. Then, like, what what was your ex- how did you experience you know nature growing up? Well, so when I was growing up a long time ago, <laughs> the Florida, there was a lot fewer people. You know, you could yeah. ride, I could ride my bike. I grew up in Wilton Manors on a little dirty little canal. We'd get manatees up in the canal, which was great. But you could ride your bike over to the beach and be the only one on the beach. Um, and I would go, the Birch States Park was across the street from the beach that I went to. And it was this quiet little preserve and you could run around in there. And, you know, as like my brother and I would, there was a little train that ran through there, but my mom would, you know, be, she'd let us go. We would just run around there. And it was, um, it was urban nature, but it was nature, you know, it was still there. And you could still, at the time, I didn't know they were called hardwood hammocks, but, you know, they were, they were still empty space in Eastern Florida, South Florida. Um, and it was, it was amazing. We would, uh, the canals in our neighborhood. It was before people really had fences. So we'd get like these neighborhood tag games and we would run up and down the seawalls playing tag and hide and seek. And, you know, it's just being outside. It was, <laughs> we didn't have central air growing up. <laughs> 
So we did spend a lot of time outside because it was sometimes cooler outside than inside. Same. I remember central air being installed in my Miramar home when I was a little kid. Right. It I was remember like that was what that was like. A big deal. It was a big deal. I think like a lot of people who grow up outside, you know, you, you just feel this connection. It's just kind of like in your DNA at a certain point. It's like people make fun of people from Florida. They say when you move up north, you know, your blood is thin, you get, you're colder than everybody else. I think that happens too with just your your connection to, to, to the outside. And I mean, I will say that when... Um, you know, I grew up in South Florida. I was like a Florida girl, South Florida girl. I married into a family of anglers, and I would be remiss if I did not give credit to how big an influence that was because my husband was the first to really get me out on the water. I mean, we had a little rowboat <laughs> behind our house that we'd row around the canal, but but it was he was the one who first, like, took me out fishing, took me into Biscayne Bay, and showed me this world that, uh, frankly, I did not know was really out there. And it was, you know, it was it was life-altering. Right. When man meets up against uh, the environment, and I think that nothing sums that up as much as where you can bird watch in South Florida. Like, it was a real surprise to me that there is this uh, hidden place where people see a great diversity of birds and it's not where you would you would expect. Where is that? The South Dade landfill um, by Black Point Marina, uh, just west of Black Point Marina. There's a big old landfill that rises up. It's one of our Mount Trashmores. <laughs> right. It's one of our Mount Trashmores. I remember when the Mount Trashmore was the one in Broward, which, by the way, is an aside. I remember driving by once and there was like a sign like like in Hollywood. You know, like the big Hollywood sign, it was on that Mount Trashmore. Oh, that's a Mount Trashmore? Yeah, and it, and, it, and it kind of blew my mind. I was like, well, I guess this is what we're all about. So Our version so, of landmarks. <laughs> so tell me about that. Tell me about going out to the to the trash dump to look for birds, to bird. I So I wanted to do something on the Christmas, on Audubon's Christmas bird count, because I think it's kind of a cool thing. It is the longest running wildlife survey in existence, and, and it's citizen science. I mean, it's 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 a it's a cool thing. And so I, I can't remember who I contacted at first, but they said, there's this really great birder, this kid, Alex Harper, you got to go out with him. And so I, I got in touch with him, and he's like, I have the perfect place. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, I did not expect to be going out to the garbage dump. When he said the dump I was like you are right that is gonna be <laughs> awesome and we so I met him um sort of before dawn or it was just starting to get late and and you can't you know so the sun's coming up and there's there's this mountain mountainous landfill um and and as the sun comes up you know you see the turkey vultures start coming around and there's more and more vultures and and, and and that was kind of disappointed by. I was like, I see these Yeah, I could see those like going in downtown Miami. <laughs> right, right. So when did it get interesting? So then, so he did not even. He like you know didn't give the the, the landfill a second look. I mean, he started. There's a little marsh. So oh. so as he pointed out, nobody wants to live near a dump. So there's lots of empty land, and um and that's a coastal very the 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 area between the coast and the landfill is only like a couple miles, which it's unfortunate to have a landfill that close to Biscayne Bay. Because that's near a Black Point Marina, as it is. folks might know. It okay. is. And so what you get is this very, in close proximity, um, you have wetlands and marshes, um, and you get 
marine birds and and songbirds you know mm. so you have a, a huge mix of and where there are smaller birds there's bigger birds like hawks there's birds of prey um oh wow and and so so they have i'll just start at the beginning because i love this phrase dawn chorus when the sun comes up um they the birders call it the dawn chorus and it's when the birds the insects start to come out as the day warms up or as the sun comes up and then the birds come out and they start singing like crazy and I always, you know, I was one of those people, bird sounds are just like white noise in a way. Like we don't always listen to them. But when you're with a birder and they start calling him out and he would start doing the sounds and the different sounds, suddenly it's like seeing in color for the first time. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I've i come to know a couple, like I know what a cardinal sounds like in my yard and certain you know, the, what the mockingbird sounds like. Are, are there, I, can I get you to do any bird sounds? No. Like I can't get you to do a Ron McGill bird sound thing? I, I'm not good enough at it. I, I wish that, that Alex was sitting here because he, he, it was, you know, he would just, he knew all of them. And I said to him, how do you how do you learn bird sounds like how do you and he is like well you bird enough you're out you get that the hang of it but then he also listened to tapes oh man that is down the nerd hole there it, it is so nerdy <laughs> so so the, these birders i mean and thank goodness i feel like birders anglers they're all in the same tribe in a way because they fixate on stuff and they keep counts and numbers and they know where they caught things or where they saw things and the exact species the size all, and they record all that and it's so it is this amazing database for scientists too i mean fish and bird are a measure of planet health i think in a way because people have obsessed over them for so long you know we have a record we have a record of people's habits and and we should say that folks can check out that story at wlrn.org there i want to say that there's there's a measure over Christmas time where people count birds right so uh, it's December and January um it's it's mostly North America Central and South America Hawaiian Islands um I think there may be some in New Zealand um but there it's spans the the, the globe not all parts but yeah and they and anybody can do it that was WLRN's environmental reporter Jenny Stiletovich You can listen to the full conversation on our website at wlrn.org forward slash sundial. And that's Sundial for Wednesday, March 8th. Leslie Ovalle Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News. And Katie Munoz is our director of live programming. Peter J. Mertz is WLRN's vice president of radio and Sundial's engineer. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Balo at gopalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program. Just search for WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up tomorrow on the program, joining us are two big book nerds, Connie Ogle of the Miami Herald, who reads more than anyone I know, and Mitchell Kaplan of Books and Books. We talked about some of the most exciting book releases coming up this year. I'm Carlos Frias. Thanks for listening.